Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 36, this is God's word. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from this unto Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlade her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children, till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. If you looked at the title of this sermon, you might have might or might not have known that I was inspired in the title by the song, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. Now, I remember that this song is popularized by the all-male vocal uh, group Boys to Men in 1991, although currently I'm finding people who are uh, associating this song with Jason Mraz from 2014. Uh, of course, uh, Boys to Men was only covering a song that was a 1975 Motown hit from the film Cooley High, which I'm sure all of you have watched, by G.C. Cameron, formerly of the, Spin the Spinners fame, uh, and the song It's a Shame, for those of you who know that, from 1970. And yet I prefer the Boys to Men version. I think that there is something haunting about the song in acapella, that uh, the sole accompaniment is some, somewhat distracts from. And yet, even at that, I confess that uh, mo more modern four-part harmony a cappella covers of the song are preferable from its original or the Boys to Men version, which has somewhat uh, what I find to be mu muddy lyrics. But that's, of course, just me. Now, why do I bring this song up as I continue to wax eloquent, or some of you would say boring, about my interest in uh, song history? Well, the song is about loss and letting go, but also uh, uh, the hope for the future. Uh, one of the refrains of the song says, and I'll take with me the memories to be my sunshine after the rain. And I think this is important for us to reflect on, especially in the Reformed cap camp, with our preoccupation on total depravity. The prevalence of evil in our struggle and in this life causes us to doubt and uh, to live in hopelessness, in, especially in the midst of difficult things such as goodbyes. And for these reasons, I think we ought to resort to texts such as this and to ask ourselves, how does Paul handle saying goodbye? It's almost as if Luke intends the trek from Miletus to Jerusalem to read like Paul's farewell tool, tour 
he does it twice in these, this passage, at the beginning and at the end. And I wanted you to notice that at the beginning and the end, how the two uh, verbs that are used at both times, kneeling and praying, show uh, appear. We have seen his charge to the elders in Ephesus, and from there, uh, what reads to us like a travel narrative, uh, at which we could pass over quickly, seems to me to be laden with pathos. And in the city, where he is perhaps relatively unknown, he finds new friends repeating warnings he has heard before and facing another departure. So as we follow Paul along his trek, let us observe his behavior and learn how to deal with goodbye, for surely we will all have occasion to use the skill. Here we find good tears, good times, and good friends. Good tears, good times, and good friends. We begin with Paul's departure from the elders in Ephesus. We recall the charge he laid on them his care for them and the church, his concern for what is going on there and preparing them for the future. The interview ends with the assembly kneeling and weeping. Paul ends this meeting, I think, very fittingly in verse 26, and when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. Kneeling is somewhat an unusual thing, especially uh, in the days of, in which Paul is doing this. As you look at Luke chapter 18, verse 11, uh, it seems that often the posture of prayer was that of standing. And yet kneeling often appears in the Bible, uh, in Christian prayer, especially uh, when something momentous or important or sorrowful is to take place. It is kneeling is the posture of Solomon in 1 Kings 8 54 during the uh, consecration of the temple that he has built. It is the posture of Daniel in Daniel 6.10 after uh, the hearing of the uh, edict forbidding prayer. It is the posture of Jesus in the garden in Luke 22.41 uh, as he is facing his final test. It is the posture of Peter in Acts 9 verse 40. It often appears in distress and in great need. And that it oftener appears in the New Testament would tend to suggest that New Testament saints recognize their dependence upon the Lord. We have uh, no land here as Israel did. We have no promised land uh, where we are assured of God's blessing. We have no assured place. And so understanding who we are as pilgrims and strangers in a land looking forward to a heavenly home, we kneel before our God in prayer. This prayer occasion uh, joined the assembly in petitions one for another. You see that in verse 36. And when he had spoken thus, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. They are all praying together. We can imagine Paul praying for the elders of, and the church in Ephesus as they face the wolves that will soon be coming. We can hear the elders reciprocating in their prayers for, for Paul, his travels and the dangers that he undoubtedly faces, that he himself confesses he will face in Jerusalem. In that place, we can know the love that they felt for one another deepened by their shared knowledge of the difficulties each will face. Different, to be sure, and yet common to all. There is a sense in which it takes knowledge to pray for one another. It takes knowledge to love one another. To love, one must truly know. To fervently pray, one must know and care. 
and yet knowing and caring and loving all risk pain that we see evidence in the eyes of them all. Look at verse 37, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. This idea of them, uh, this verse, they are all weeping and the elders are falling on Paul's neck and kissing him. This was not a pleasant parting. It was agonizing. In the Net Bible, in the NIV, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, where it says, And it came to pass after we had gotten from them. It's rather cold. The Net Bible in the NIV read, They tore themselves away. No wonder Paul hadn't wanted to stop at Ephesus. If he had stopped at Ephesus, if this was their, his parting from the elders, how could he have ever gotten out of that city? He surely would not have made it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. You see here uh, the wisdom of Paul in avoiding that city on his way back in order to keep to his time schedule. You see uh, the tears. A lack of sorrow, a lack of tears may be good for automatons, but for the race of Adam, sorrow and tears often is appropriate. We see this in the object of their sorrows. Look at verse 28. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. We must read this brief insight uh, into the thinking and sorrow of the people, uh, meaning that they would not see his face again in this life, on this side of heaven. They're not sorrowing because they will never see Paul's face again. They certainly know the teaching of the resurrection. They know they will see Paul again, but maybe not on this side of glory. We sorrow not as those without hope, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. For this parting and all parting of men from men is foreign to the state in which we were created. It warrants tears. It warrants their clinging to one another and their, take, their staying together to the very point of going to the ship. I like music, but I don't often listen to it. The fact that I like music is pretty re- evident from uh, my waxing eloquent about the Boys to Men song that many of you may not have ever heard before. And yet, for all of my interest in music and its history, I, if you go to my house on a certain day, you will not find it filled with music. It isn't playing regularly in my house, and teenage me, when I look back and think about what I did when I was a younger tyke, would come to me and probably have some strong words about my lack of music in my house. I thought about this recently and wondered why it was that I, though I seem to have this fascination with music, it just doesn't make a strong part of my life. And I concluded, regrettably, that I don't listen to music because music makes me feel. And I don't want to feel. And that doesn't mean that I've reached the higher plane of Kolinar, where I am now a person of pure, for those of you who aren't well-versed in Star Trek theory, Uh, I have not become a Vulcan. In living a life without emotions, it means that I have probably a very serious emotional problem. And while you probably don't have the same problem, I think that we all avoid negative feelings. We don't want to cry. We see tears as weakness, as mere sentiment. 
We see them as things to be avoided. We think of sorrow and sadness as bad things that we prefer to leave off. And yet you see in these pages that Paul and the elders of Ephesus are not embarrassed by this fact. Embarrassed by their, they are not embarrassed by their tears. Paul understands sorrow and weeping as the proper function of a human dealing with a world that is broken by sin. And yet even their tears are mingled with hope. Because that assembly, those men that met together on that day and heard those words and cried those tears, knew that they would meet again. They would come together even if not in this life. You see, the task for the Christian is often harder than we think it is, for the task of the Christian is not to hold back tears, but learn how to weep in hope. It's very easy for us to say, it's very hard for us to do, to be able to embrace our sorrow and hope at the same time. Because there are, there is a place for good tears. But secondly, if it it's, seems rather abrupt for us to go from good tears to good times, but uh, go with me on it for a bit. In this travel narrative, you would be excused for thinking nothing of the next few verses. And to be honest, many of the commentators would share that opinion. And perhaps you would accuse me of making much out of little for the sake of the sermon. And I would understand that accusation as well. However, I see something rather endearing about this section. We watch as Paul makes his way southward and then eastward. Paul's ship continues its city-hopping track along the coastline of modern-day Turkey, uh, moving southward, in verse 1. And it came to pass, after we had gotten away from them and had launched, we came with a straight course into Koaz, and the day following unto Rose, and from thence to Patera. This ship, which we have followed since Troas, has been hopping down steadily southward the coastline of what we now know as modern-day Turkey on the west coast. It's, uh, it's hopping from place to place, probably uh, trading in every port in which it goes. It was a common thing for ships in that day. And the journey is not without interest, especially uh, in one of the names that we find in this verse. For there at that place over 200 years prior, an earthquake had toppled one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There at Rhodes, the ruins of the Colossus remained still a tourist attraction, a tourist attraction as people would come to see the ruined uh, idol there on the sand. And what would Paul and his companions have made of that creation of man that had been toppled by the power of an earthquake, a, a power infinitesimally small compared to that of the Almighty God? who was crucified upon the cross. Perhaps they would look at that with reminders of Babel and the hubris of man as they looked upon the ruin. They come to Patra, and at that city, the company chooses a new ship, as we see in verse 2. Now, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. 
Now, why do they change ships here in verse 2? Well, there, there's probably a, a plethora of reasons which could be advanced, but probably the choice that captures most uh, commentators' attention is likely the new vessel's ability to navigate the open sea. It would probably be a very small boat hopping down the coastline from port to port. This boat seems to set off from Patra and not make port again until it reaches Tyre. If you have your maps up in the back of your Bibles, you'll probably see that that's a pretty far journey in open sea, not hugging the coastline of Turkey and Syria. And that we have this, uh, this concept that this open course is the reason for changing ships, as the company does. This ship moves eastward towards Paul's destination, we read in verse 3, Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed unto Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. In this course, toward the east, over the open sea, they make sight of one landmass, one island, and that island is an island we haven't seen in Acts since chapter 15. Paul has not seen this island, let alone been on it, for at least five years and probably more. And yet it is the island upon which his mission work had begun. When he set out from Antioch, he and Barnabas, his first port of call, first work of mission, began in the island of Cyprus. Of course, then it was Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And for all the reader knows, Barnabas and John Mark are still on the island of Cyprus. For after the big bust-up between the first and before the second missionary journey, Paul, uh, Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus while Paul and Silas go to Galatia. What would have gone through Paul's mind hour after hour as he watched that landmass slip by the left-hand side of the ship? Finally, the ship makes its port at its destination, Tyre, and there it must unload. Probably this indicates that the company intended to stay with the ship as it continued down the east course of the Mediterranean to Caesarea. While the ship is unloading, and it may have taken the whole uh, seven days unloading one cargo, and likely, I mean, they don't just unload a cargo and then take an empty ship down the coast. They had to load a whole other cargo onto the ship. And so probably they're spending the seven days there, and then they're going to stay on the ship. But what would they do while they're at Tyre? What would the company of Paul and his fellows do in a town that was perhaps unknown to them? And we'll come to that next. But let's look at the verses that we have just gone over. And perhaps it is because I am affected uh, or afflicted by the powerful forces of nostalgia. I admit that that is likely. I find nostalgia a very tempting uh, feeling. And yet I don't think that I am alone at, in this. Because sometimes it's good to look back, to remember past failures, and to consider how far God has brought us. God's faithfulness in the past ought to make us confident about his faithfulness for the future. After all, Paul would write, He who began a good work in us will continue to perform it into the day of Christ. And perhaps Paul looked at that island and remembered his first compatriot, the one 
who was faithful through all of the dangers of Cyprus, through Galatia, even to Lystra and Derby, where he had been stoned. Maybe his remembrance of Barnabas reminded him of other compatriots that he had left at places along his journey. He left so many behind, and yet with him travels a new crop of fellow laborers. He's with a whole group of people laboring with him. You see, there is a danger in nostalgia. We can get lost in the past. We can learn the wrong lessons from uh, our history. There is, as I would argue, there is no right side of history, as some are pleased to call it, only obedience to the law of God. We can let the past sin drag us into despair and discouragement as if we would never break free from it. We can forget to, to live in hope, but we ought not. For we hope not in our efforts nor despair in the face of sin, but look to God who carries us along the path that he has forged. There's a good work. There's a good reason to remember the past, to remember what it is that God has done for us, to remember, if you will, the good times. And sometimes the best times, the best events in our lives aren't the ones that where we, you know, had a party or something, but often when we went through something difficult and God brought us through it. And yet, my friend, without Christ, there is no time that is good. Instead, we are all born in a living death, headed to hell and destruction. But Jesus, the one Paul preached, came to bring us life. He is God-made man. He lived a perfect life for us. He died for sin upon the cross. He rose from the dead. And this is what Paul was preaching. This is what Paul, uh, this is what gathered to Paul all of his friends. This is what he struggled through, what he lived for. He is what Paul remembered most in his history when he met him on the road to Damascus. And Jesus is what you need to live. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I urge you to turn from your sin and to follow him. We see good tears and good times and finally, good friends. For the path of Christ does wind through troubles and sorrows, but it also draws us near to others and on to joy. We see this in the final scene as we come, as we see the company meeting those who prophesy, but who also kneel. Luke loads so much into the next verse, in verse 4, and finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. The presence of the church here is unknown, but it's explicable. It may have resulted from Paul's own persecution. Paul might be the reason for the the fact that there's a church entire, even though he never, up to this point, as far as we know, visited the place. For in Acts 11, 19, now now they which were scattered abroad unto the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Phoenicia, Phoenicia, uh, the place where Paul is now. Even though Tyre is not mentioned as the city where a church was established, the region in which Paul is now, in which which Tyre exists, 
is a place where the gospel came after the, the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of Saul. In, church, in this church, they have prophets who relate the message about Paul's journey that he knows, that bonds and suffering await him in Jerusalem, and the people tell Paul that he should not go there. Some have seen in verse 4 a direct contradiction, and I wonder uh, how the Spirit can tell Paul that he's got to go to Jerusalem, and the same Spirit tells these people that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Well, that is not necessarily what this verse means. It says that they speak to him, prophesy by the Spirit, which means they are prophesying the fact that bonds and difficulty and suffering await Paul in Jerusalem. And they make the logical uh, recommendation. Paul, there's bad things waiting for you in Jerusalem. You shouldn't go. After all, how could you tell someone if you know that they're headed into danger, that they should continue on that path. Paul goes because he must, a fact unapparent to this church that is hidden in his heart. And so Paul continues his journey in verse 5, And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and kneeled, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. It's, this verse would be just a kind of interesting travel narrative if it hadn't had all of this other stuff. And the other stuff here is the fact that the church travels with them and accompanies them out of the city, even to their ship, just like the elders in Ephesus did in Miletus. One week, seven days, that's all the time we know that Paul and his compatriots ever spent with this church entire. That's all the contact that we know that they shared. One week, seven days, and the church had become Paul's friends. Loving Paul, they abandoned the city, accompanying him to the shore. And notice the extent of the camaraderie. It's not just all of the old fogey guys who had nothing better to do on a Sunday or Saturday or whenever the day was when they were going to leave. It was all the men in the church and all their wives and all their kids. It was the totality of the church. No one wanted to be excluded. Everyone wanted to see Paul off. And all of them go and they stand in the shore and they kneel and pray for one another. Paul continues on their way, his way, but they remain, as it says in verse 6, and when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. Another parting. Not as dramatic as the leave-taking of the elders of Ephesus, but still a parting. Still accompanied by kneeling prayer. By contrast, this event, though in contrast to the one in Miletus with the elders of Ephesus, that great tearing away, this one seems to pour balm into the wounded heart. We read this and it's you know, in contrast to the, that 
tearing and weeping and sorrowful expression, you almost feel like that trauma is healed by this show of love. Imagine the comfort of these Christians who may have had no experience of Paul, and yet they still cared for him, even desiring to join in his departure in prayer. The whole church. That's what it, if it doesn't strike you, I don't know why, that the women and children all go. No one wants to be left behind. And that they only knew him for seven days. It's one thing when our nearest and dearest grieve with us, when they are upset when we have to leave. But when complete strangers join their hearts to ours, it is something refreshing and blessing. Satan wants us to despair. Satan wants us to believe that we are alone. Satan wants us to think that we are small and that he is mighty, that we are, you know, yes, there are, we are the few, the brave few, maybe, but he wants us to think that we are small. Loneliness is perhaps one of his most pernicious lies, for we are anything but alone. The author of Hebrews tells us we are surrounded by a host of witnesses. We stand in a long line of spiritual ancestors that trace their way back through Jesus, through David, through Moses, through Abraham, through Noah, through to Adam and Eve. Not only do we have this history of, of ancestors behind us, the invisible church exists throughout the world as God's people meet together and sing his praises and pray. We may be a minority, but we are certainly not alone. We are not alone because God gathers his people into churches, into local churches. He has surrounded us with his chosen even when we go to new places, we find his people and they rally to us as they did to Paul. I remember this sweet memory that I'll probably carry with me to my deathbed that illustrates this point. When I was going to be licensed at, uh, for, to be here as your stated supply so many, many years ago, I went to a new place. It was uh, Madison, Alabama. It's near, it's Huntsville, Alabama for most of us. And I went to a church I'd never been to before. I had to find it on, well, I think I had a, a GPS by then. I can't be sure. It was so long ago. Probably not. I probably had to uh, have uh, instructions printed out. You remember when you had to go online and print out instructions to get someplace instead of just putting it into your phone? And I went to this church I'd never been to, and I would have, it, it would be a traumatic event. I already knew. If you know anything about the state of uh, this denomination, this, this Presbyterian, this church back then, you know that I went there not without a little trepidation. There were people going to ask me some very serious questions, and uh, I didn't feel like all of them were necessarily on my side. And uh, I had to preach, and I had to stand up and answer questions thrown at me from various places. And I remember I walked in, and one of the very first persons I met uh, 
I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. In fact, this was his second time at this presbytery, maybe. And we just started talking. And I remembered that he took me aside before I had to go on and preach, and he prayed with me. This person I had only met for a few hours, if, and we had a bond because we were both in Christ. Yes, Christian, you are never alone. Because the only one who ever truly walked alone was Jesus, and he walked alone for us. And I suggest to you that if you find yourself alone, it is because you have purposely walked away from God's people. I could have been alone on that day so long ago, and I could have just walked right back out of that church. But that's in the church. That's where God's people were. And so if we avoid God's people, how can we complain about our isolation? For we have isolated ourselves. Well, let me encourage us to be those who rally to one another. Be like that guy I met on that day who try to integrate our lives into the lives of God's people. To take a lesson from the people of Tyre that at as brief as their time with Paul was, it induced him to love him and follow him to the ship. So we ought quickly to take to heart those of God's people whom he is pleased to send to us. But don't make any mistake, that doesn't mean it'll be an easy time because it means that we must be willing to suffer with them that we may rejoice as well with them. And yet let not this sober reminder keep us from love and good works as we seek to show the fellowship of God's people together. Let's pray. Lord, give us the willingness to enter into the lives of your people. Help us to remember your goodness to us in the past, giving us hope for the future. Show us that we are not alone. May we be thankful for your people and seek to serve them. Amen.